Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follier Different, and we've been voted the number one dialogue podcast for people who uh, value real, different conversations about business, marketing, and life. And today, the second part in our two-part series on entrepreneurship. Today, we talk about how to build billion-dollar startups with a guy who knows a thing or two about that, one of my favorite founder CEOs, Osman Rashid. He started the now $8 billion publicly traded Chegg, C-H-E-G-G, in the uh, student space that you may know, as well as his new company is called Convo.com. And uh, I met Osman in the early days of Chegg. I was actually introduced to him by Mike Maples. And I became an advisor uh, to his company, and uh, we've been colleagues and friends ever since. And um, to say I respect him is, uh, to put it mildly, this is an inspiring conversation, and I think at a time when many of us need inspiration, uh, with a legendary entrepreneur. And uh, look, you know if you're a regular listener, I'm biased, but I think entrepreneurs are going to play an outsized role in carrying us forward in uh, recovering from the situation we all find ourselves in, and most importantly, in designing a future that really works. Um, Osman's a legendary guy who has a very hard time taking no for an answer, and I think you're going to enjoy this conversation very much. Now, if you're a business leader, entrepreneur, or marketer, check out Lockhead on Marketing, uh, our other podcast. We are currently doing a pod storm. Uh, That is to say, for 30 days, we're releasing an onslaught of short marketing podcasts uh, sort of designed to spark your thinking, creativity, and ideas on how to um, create the future of your choosing. So check out Lockhead on Marketing at Lockhead.com or anywhere else you get legendary podcasts. Also note, every Friday from 1130 at 11.30 a.m. Pacific time, we'll be doing a live Q&A a conversation on our Facebook group. Uh, so you can join us there. You can just search for us on Facebook and you'll find us. Now, clearly America is getting ready to get back to work. And as we get back to work, you need every advantage that you can get. And that's where my friends at NetSuite by Oracle come in. They help you manage every penny with precision. And they have recently created this new guide called Seven Actions Businesses Need to Take Now. And to get your free guide, go to netsuite.com slash different. And as well, you'll be able to get a free product tour of NetSuite at netsuite.com slash different. And in a crisis, data has never been more valuable. And that's where my friends at Splunk come in. S-P-L-U-N-K. Splunk are the leaders in data to everything, helping you bring data to every question, every decision, and every action. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. That's splunk.com slash D to E. Now, hey-ho, let's go. You know, so I get the question a lot from people that, hey, you've done a few companies, you've done well, so why are you still fighting the fight, right? I mean, why are you still putting so much effort? Why don't you kick back and relax? And, you know, look, I've given it some thought, and I tried for a very small period of time of my life where I'm like, you know, let's see what the other side looks like. And, you know, it's like one of those things when you arrive, you're like, oh, shit, so this is what they're talking about. And you're like, "Um, I don't think this is that great. Because, you know, I was bored out of my mind within just a month or two. And I felt that, you know, I wasn't adding any value. And frankly, that's when I realized maybe my number one fear in life is being the, the fear of being irrelevant, right? That you have nothing to do, you're just being. And then the other thing I realized that, you know, this is a few years ago, but, you know, next month I'm going to turn 50. And Based on where medical technologies are going, based on my family history, I know I'm going to be productive until 85, 90 years old. And I was like, oh my God, what will I do for the next 40 years? And then, you know, then for me also, I actually love what I'm doing. I mean, I love building things. It's not work for me. I don't approach it like, oh my God, now I've got to have another meeting and I've got to deal with this. For me, this is like stuff I love to do. And the question is that, why shouldn't I keep on doing what I love? And everything else falls in place. I'm, I'm happily married. The kids are doing great. All those things are lined up. And I love what I do. So, you know, that's kind of the whole thing about it. It's just so interesting because I think we get, we get sold a f- false narrative 
by the hustle porn stars. You know, that the purpose of entrepreneurship is airplanes and, and Lamborghinis and shit, right? And look, hey, if you want airplanes and Lamborghinis, have at it. This is America. Go earn it. And yeah. God bless you. I, I got no problem with any part of that. And as much as sort of personal financial independence is an amazing goal, and I think a very important one that should be celebrated, absolutely. And that's not the real gift, is it? Definitely not. Because look, uh, I personally, you know, if and when my companies do great, I get happy when people around me get financial independence, economic freedom, as you said. But the goal is to build a great company. If you are doing something of value, then the financial outcome happens automatically. But if that's your actual focus, I would say you're, the failure rate is going to be even more higher than that. Yeah, you yeah. may make a, a, some outcome, small outcome here or there, but you're not going to do anything great. And, you know, so many times entrepreneurs come and ask me that, hey, you know, I'm thinking of leaving my job and becoming an entrepreneur. And my advice to them is that, look, first of all, find a problem that you really want to solve. And it's infectious for you that you can't stop thinking about it. Only then go to solve the problem. And in the process, you become an entrepreneur. Being an entrepreneur is not the goal. Solving the, the problem is the goal. And everything happens in, the, in that process because you're singularly focused on taking care of this, right? So that's the whole notion that has to be that, look, those things are absolutely, if you love cars and one day you can afford them, hey, all the more power to you. No issue with that, right? But this is really about finding the problem that you really want to solve and going at it. And if you love it, hey, that's the best outcome for you anyway. And you've chosen very different problems at different stages of your career to go focus on. I mean, what, what you're doing today doesn't feel very much like Chegg to me by way of example. Yeah, look, so I actually started um, right out of college. I joined a startup that was focused on uh, B2B, on enterprises. So actually, my first training happened on selling to B2B. And the first company I joined, um, you know, I had absolutely you know, no idea because it was straight out of college. And I joined as a product manager, but it was a very small company. And I was just said, hey, we want to launch a product here, which we are from overseas. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, you want to give it a shot kind of a thing. You know, we don't know if it's going to work or not. So you may be out of a job if it doesn't work out. Talk about having great motivation right there. <laughs> so, um, and so I was always in that field. So I've worked in enterprise software. I've done consumer stuff. I've built hardware. And I've experienced all of these things. And there's good and bad about all these areas. But if you're out to solve a problem, your industry, uh, your issues, they're just in things you've got to solve, right? For example, at Check, look, I'd never ran a, a warehouse before. I'd never built an e-commerce site. I mean... I had only used textbook. I really didn't know the textbook industry. So the beauty was that, you know, sometimes I wonder that not knowing what I didn't know was actually a benefit for me because my history didn't weigh me down that, oh my God, we did that 20 years ago, never worked, never going to work again, right? So sometimes it can be an advantage. You just have to be careful to learn from the people who were there, get their advice, but then still make your own decision. And one of my favorite expressions, Asman, is uh, you have to be stupid enough to think it's possible. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've, I've thought about that, that. Oh, my God, am I that stupid that I think it can be done? But then I'm not weighed down by anything. Right. You know, I've, yeah. I've been I've been in scuba diving. And you know how sometimes you can you can have a weight belt and no matter what you do, you're sinking. Right? You, sometimes you don't have that weight. The other expression, of course, I love is and this is one that works very well for me is I'm unencumbered from the facts. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. And, and you know, look, I have, uh, you know, when we were uh, doing check, right, uh, Tom Dillon, the former CEO of Netflix, he had become an advisor that became a board member. And he, Netflix at that time was a guru of big pack and chip of physical product across the internet, right? And look, I'd never been inside a warehouse. And two years into the company, we had built a warehouse the size of a football field. Right. I mean, hell, I was negotiating warehouse contracts without like, what, what the hell are we supposed to do here? Right. But then I was like, okay, it's a big box. You got to pay rent. You got to make sure it's got docks. Trucks have to go and come and you got enough room. And 
And beyond that, we're going to write our software to pick back and chip in. Off we go. So, you know, yes, I probably did not know a lot of issues on HR and things like that. But I said, look, I am sure we can solve them and we can do the right thing uh, at the same time as well for the people. Yeah, I love it. And that sort of... um we're going to take this hill and I don't know how, and I'm not, I've never taken a hill like this before, but we're just going to go for it. You know, that's the hallmark of legendary entrepreneurs, right? You know, so at that time I had no idea. I thought I was just being dumb about the whole thing. Right. So that's the beauty of it. So, Cause you know, I never thought about being a legendary entrepreneur. I'm not even sure I'm one right now. There's some amazing people out there. And it was all about, look, I've got this problem to solve for tomorrow. If I don't solve this, I'm in deep doo-doo. So I'm going to go solve this thing. And then the way I, I think of entrepreneurship is, and you, you kind of have to be a little bit crazy in the head to go for it. Because my philosophy on entrepreneurship is, look, you wake up in the morning full of hope and excitement, and the, ba- and the day beats the crap out of you. And then you crawl back to bed at night, and you wake up in the morning next day, and you same, and you're full of hope, and off you go again. And if you're willing to take that punishment, right? then you're okay. You're going to be fine because it's your mindset is the ultimate thing that gets you through because (laughs) you've got a small issue. You're going to fall over it or you're going to say, okay, that's really a small one compared to the other stuff I've done. So you just keep rolling right through. The other thing I'm thinking about as you're talking is we sort of are, um, how do I want to say this? Sort of hypnotized a little bit with certain ideas, right? That, for example, that comfort is the ultimate achievement, right? And that uh, even in, uh, you know, the founding of the United States, the, 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 the pursuit of happiness, that we should, we have a right to be happy all the time or that being happy all the time is actually what we want. So being comfortable and being happy. And, and, the tr- and look, I like to be comfortable and happy. I really do. Yep. And many, if not, I don't know, I, and I say this like an idea, I want to bounce it off you, of the most legendary times in our lives, we're not happy, we're uncomfortable, uh, we might even be miserable, we, we might even be fearful, um, but now you look back and you go, holy shit, look at what we did, right? And so I'm just curious about this sort of constantly wanting to put yourself in these these positions that are anything other than comfortable. Yeah, look, I mean, I would say that you know, the fear of the unknown, right? Or not knowing how things are going to turn out. Um, it's it's a great way to solve problems because if you know that, oh, how things, something's going to turn out, right? Then it's probably, you know, you're not going to put much effort into it. But the pursuit of happiness, look, it's our right. Everybody should have it. But just having money and just having those cars in the house is not how you're ever going to get it because I know... A lot of people who are perfectly happy in whatever economic situation, it's your mindset. Because you could achieve everything and still not have any real friends. The family might hate you because on, on the way up the mountain, you messed with everyone and you didn't leave any room for anyone but yourself because you're so singularly focused on getting money, right? So the philosophy has to be that, look, I mean, there are certain balances for all these things that you have to work your way through. And and, you know, you, it's not like there's a formula. Just be a good person while in the process. Look, yeah, there'll be hardcore meetings. You're going to push. You're going to push your people. You're going to get them to do their best because you're going up a hill. You're pushing a big boulder up the hill. You're getting everyone to push. At the same time, you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to destroy people, right? If someone's sick or someone has, a, you know, has is having a baby, you got to let them have the time because if you have a good team, other guys will step up. You know, other people will step up. So it's so it's really about, you know, having the singular focus on solving the problem and everything I really believe falls in line for you, falls in place as you go. And so uh, you've solved some very different problems along the way. And, you know, as you mentioned, sort of B2B and B2C and, uh, and so forth and so on. And so as an entrepreneur, how do you decide that this is a problem you're going to fall in love with? Or maybe how do you fall in love with a problem and say, yeah, I'm going to dedicate the next uh, five, maybe even 10 years of my life to go chase this one down. How, what's a good problem that gets you fired up? 
it's it's something which I think you know develops a little bit when you look into certain things, or there's something that's bugging you that my God, you know, no one's done something about this for quite some time. Sometimes it drops into your lap, and but you know you do you can't have a analysis that this or oh, this problem I'm going to solve by a spreadsheet or a PowerPoint. That's never going to work, right? You really got to dig into it and get your hands dirty. Uh, no matter who you are, if it's your idea, you can't just ship it off to a product manager to say, "Hey, can you go figure if it's a good idea or not?" <clears throat> because they never never figure it out. So unless you go into the whole place as yourself and you sit down with the end user and you look there and the end there and they say, "My God, I've been dealing with this for twenty years and no one's fixed it." That's when you're like, "Huh? I like this idea. The problem is obviously needs a solution." Like for example, at Convo right now, we are we are building a few products, and you know, so there's a few customers, potential customers in Baton Rouge, in the middle of nowhere, that we had to meet. And I was like, look, I'm going to go down there myself, and I'm going to sit in this store with this person, all five of them across the city, and I just want to look in their eyes because I think I'm going to be designing my product when I'm sitting there, as I'm talking to them. That's what you need to do. I. Um, I was speaking to a few people the other day, and these were senior executives. And I, I was like, "Look, you know, I've heard from a few of you guys that we tried to launch products in our enterprises, and they didn't work, and the culture didn't accept it." And I was like, "Can you really tell me that you went down and you spoke to the guy that's that's working the the line, or yeah, you know, the people in the warehouse, or you know, your uh, marketing manager? Did you really sit down and talk to them as to what is it that they want to do?" Or did you just have a license and you threw it across the thing and say, "Hey, we have an internal network for the enterprise. Knock yourself out." Well, if you gave them yet another product with yet another login, which didn't really add any value to them, of course it's going to fail, right? So the idea is that you really have to dig deep into it, and you can pretty quickly begin to figure out that, "Hey, I think this is something real." And I, after doing your research, meeting with people. Is that something a voice inside it tells you, man? I want to do this, and then you got to follow that voice a little bit. And you could be wrong, right? It's, or some competitor may beat you, but you just you really have to be um, at some point really infected by it for you to really stick with it. And so that that problem needs to sort of get in your soul. You need to. It, one of my favorite expressions I saw it spray painted years ago on the side of a building. It said, "Too many causes without a rebel." Yep. And so exactly. you have to you have to feel like you want to be that rebel for that cause, yes? Yes, you know, and, and the funny thing was Chegg, right? The plan A had failed. We were going to be Craigslist for colleges, and that really, it was working well on campuses, but we never felt we could scale it. I think it was, you know, the hyper-local markets and everything were too early. But as we got into um, textbook rentals, and Mike Maples, our mutual friend, was heavily involved in the process. I mean, wonderful guy, right? I remember being so angry at, oh my God, I remember when I was in college, I was a foreign student and they made me pay $150 for this bloody book. And when I took it back at the end of semester, they gave me $30 for it. And it's only gotten worse. And now you're really mad at it. And you're like, wow, this is still going on and it's gotten worse. And now you wanted to, you know, stick it with a man a little bit on that one. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, so, so, so and, hold really, on. I hate to interrupt you, Asman, but for, for some of us anyway, that are entrepreneurs, like there is an element, there's the, a bit of a punk rock, fuck you, <laughs> I'll show you, chip on your shoulder. There, there is, for some of us, that's a motivator. Yes. Yeah. Look, it, it can absolutely be a, be a motivator. And, you know, not everything falls in that line. It's not a required bullet that you have to be angry about something. Right. It's an, it's an extra little it, it, punch. It helps me. You know, it's yeah, like, um, it's, it's an I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a huge yeah. fan of, uh, you know, boxing and the UFC and martial arts and things like that. And there are a lot of professional fighters who they're professional fighters and they're gentlemen and they're honorable and they're just fighting for a living and it's not personal. And then there's some fighters who they have to sort of find a way to hate their opponent. Because <laughs> no, no, otherwise, exactly. if they're yeah. not a little angry, it's not. And so I relate to that, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, no, absolutely. There were so many times we got thrown out of the Stanford campus for walking around with a banner saying F the bookstore. Right? <laughs> Wait a minute. I mean, so so you, you went to Stanford with a banner that said F the bookstore? 
So right, right. You know, so there are certain days when Stanford students show up at the bookstore. Many of them to get books. So we knew we figured out when that day was. We did the same thing at Berkeley. So then we got two of our guys to build a banner, and you know, hold it. You know, it was big, like eight foot long banner. Two guys holding it outside the bookstore. F the bookstore. Why, you know, why buy when you can rent? Right. We were going for the notion of look, you know, forget the textbook, but you can rent something. Why do you want to buy it? Why do you want to own it? Right. So we kind of went for the overall market that look, change is coming. And after like 30 minutes, 45 minutes, the cops would show us, campus police would kick us off. Then we figure out, go around the campus, show up again, because by the time they show up, it's another hour. Right. So we would we would do it for one or two days. And eventually we got a cease and desist notice from Stanford. Be like, all right, we pushed it in us. But, you know, but that was a whole thing inside the company. Yeah, baby, we did. I hate to interrupt you, but you, you, the cops threw you off once, you came back, and you kept coming back until the cease and desist letter showed up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And look, I mean, we were just like, we're like, look, this is, we're just standing here. We're not saying anything. We're not saying don't go inside. We just, we're doing a good service for your students. We're trying to save them money. But obviously, you know, the university is going to save them cut. from your evil bookstore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, look, the university is going to cut from the profit of the bookstore, right? So we knew that they're, you know, kind of in the system. So we were like, well, but we got enough students to start talking about it. And, you know, we ran whole campaigns at the bookstore. We had T-shirts for it. We had baseball hats for it. And kids loved it. And let me, maybe let's drill in a little bit here. Um I'm sure there was somebody, you'll tell me, that when you were working on this idea for this campaign, this 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 guerrilla business, somebody said, Oh, you know, we, we can't say F the bookstore. That's that's offensive. Somebody we're gonna there had to be objections oh, to yeah. being that provocative or outrageous, yes? Yes. Look, I mean, for example, it depends on the industry you're in and who your target is. I would never do something like that for Convo Enterprise Collaboration, right? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. But we're talking about the student market. We were not putting online ads for it. We are just banners. It has to be thoughtful. It has to be targeted. It has to be for the right audience. And the students loved it. Like, yeah, maybe have the bookstore. They'll be walking by and they're like, what do you mean have the bookstore? What what can I rent? Where can I do it? Right? Be like, and then we have a brochure to give to them. It has to be thought out. There was, you know, there was concern about it. But the other thing is like, you know, sometimes you just do it, you don't ask permission, you just say sorry, right? So I never told the board we were gonna do anything like this. We would just go do it and see what happens. Because some of these in at Chegg, the crazy thing is that there are two windows of three weeks where your entire business has to be built. So I don't have time to build a presentation, get something going, because I got to try it. If it didn't work, dump it, go to the next thing, try, 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 and boom, 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 and something works, off you go for it, right? You don't have the luxury of six-month planning for brand release. We do that, obviously, for the company, but the guerrilla marketing on the ground, it's got to be bang, bang, bang. You've got to do it, try it, dump it, be brutal. And like you say, with Chegg, if we missed that magic time in August when the students are getting their books together, August and then maybe, I guess, into early September, the, but you tell me, like a two or three or four week period, whatever it was, you miss that and you miss the year. Absolutely. And and the other interesting thing is that I had a marketing consultant, some guy you might know, Chris Lockhead, and he used to show up at our meetings with wearing these fancy boots with the, you know, attitude and... You know, I remember running many of these decisions by him that, hey, we're going to do it. He was like, yeah, baby, go do it. We're like, you know, so so that guy really, really helped us. I mean, some of the things we did, right? I, I remember when you walked into our first meeting and, you know, we had on our board, you know, number one in textbook rentals. We had a little bit on the side. And we were like, man, should we, should we do it? And by the way, that had come into my mind when I saw Hertz say we had number one car rental and Amy say we had number one car rental. I'm like, what the hell's going on? How can everyone be number one? Then I got into it. I'm like, well, no one is renting textbooks, really. And we've done a few thousands. So who's to say we're not number one? Right? And then you walked in, you're like, yeah, fuck this. This is exactly what it needs to be. You're totally right. Take the position. And and Chris, you and I, even though I don't think we had, you know, you had coined the term building a subcategory or being a category queen at that point. But that's what we actually did. We created 
textbook rentals as a subcategory. And we said that we want to be the biggest fish in that tiny pond. Forget the industry, forget textbooks. We're going to own this section, right? I mean, you know, we drove the hell out of our orange color. Eventually, people said, hey, I saw your orange box at Atlanta Airport. That's you, right? I mean, we own orange inside textbooks, inside the education market. But I want to give you kudos because, Chris, I tell you that we, you know, you really backed us by saying, go for it, man. Nothing's going to happen. Who, what's the worst that could happen? Because, you know, you still worry about, okay, am I go I'm going to do some of this crazy stuff. But I, I want to recognize and give you kudos because it's not because I'm at your podcast. I tell this to people all the time that we had a crazy boot loving guy who told me, Hey, I ski for six months and I surf for six months. And I told him, if you're doing that, when the hell are you going to help me? Right. So I so, found a little time. The waves aren't always good. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, that's that's kind of you to say uh, th there's lots to sort of unpack here. So let's go maybe straight to that decision to not only uh, proclaim a category, because, of course, today it seems obvious, right? It doesn't even seem like it was ever even a debate that renting textbooks would become a quote unquote thing, i.e. a category. But of course, today it is. So you made the decision simultaneously to say, A, there's this new category called textbook rentals, which at the time was a head scratcher. Yep. And B, we're number one. So the first time anybody ever even heard about the concept, never mind the company or the service, what they heard was something along the lines of we're Chig and we're number one in textbook rentals. Right. And so how do you make the decision to say, fuck it, not only are we going to declare the category, we're going to, from the get-go, from day one, we're going to declare ourselves the category queen, the category king. Yeah, absolutely right. And, you know, some of it came um, as we thought through the problem, right? There was so much noise in the industry, right? I mean, Amazon was used book king, right? I mean, he was, they were the ones who were driving everything. You had Barnes & Noble. You had all these companies online buying up all the ads. We couldn't even afford to rent a, a Google ad for textbook. It was $10 per something, right? And we're like, man, how are we going to rise above the noise? And what is it that we're going to do? And we, and we slowly crept into it. It was not an overnight decision, right? We were, we were testing a lot of things on Google AdWords. We were doing our work. We were incrementally doing it. I had a very young team. Um, you know. Um, who, especially Osama Hafar, he was one of my, uh, you know, he'd never done marketing before, but he was just a smart guy. He would One sit. of the greatest young bucks in marketing I've ever had the opportunity exactly. to work with. That and, guy is awesome, Osama. Yeah, so, so he would sit there and he would, okay, I tried this ad, this happened, and we slowly began to, actually, we even built our tagline based on what Google Ads was showing people were clicking on. Right. So we because our marketing was going to be online, we did not have budget for branding big things. It has to be online. There is another um, another thing that happened. And I still remember to this day that's one of those decisions which uh, impacted the company in a big way. And it comes to positioning. Was there were two big search engines at that point, um, and they were driving a lot of traffic uh, to all the book sites. They would do search textbook search price comparison. And I had one reach out to them. I said, hey, can we be a part of your, uh, your platform so you can show textbook rentals? And they were like, hey, yeah, this is great, but we've got a huge problem. So I get a call. I'm driving. I still remember the road I was driving on as this conversation is taking place. And he goes, Asman, we love what you're doing, but you got to understand our problem. I'm like, what's that? He's like, look, we make money on cost per action. That if somebody rents a $50 book, we make our 5%, right? So when somebody rents a $50 book, we make more money. But if somebody's going to rent a book, well, you cut our commission by two thirds. So what is our incentive of sending people your way? Uh, besides the fact I said, you know, I was like, you're a search engine. You should be sending the price, best price possible. But I understood their motivation. These were small guys with three people shop and they made all the money for the whole year during this window. And I remember saying, you know what? You make 5%. I'm going to give you 15%. I'm going to have you make more money. Then what you do right now, remember, I had nothing to lose because if they drop me, I 
lost a big source of traffic, right? And guess what? Every student would do a search, he would always be number one because search is by price. And even the kids who were not transacting with everyone said, what is this check thing, right? And some of those decisions, some of those little moves that we made, and they were very incremental, small little moves because uh, they helped build the company. But it's like, you know, as you'd ask, right? Okay, how do you decide to be a leader in it? You don't get there on day one. It's not a bold decision. You're going to go do it. There's some incremental stuff that you have to do to validate. In our mind, we said we're going to be best in textbook rentals. So we knew we wanted to do that. But to make it real, there's a lot of little moving parts that if the people behind the product are not paying attention to, you're never going to get there. It's just a great idea on a slide. This is what I love about you as an entrepreneur amongst many other things. But this is a very big one and actually something that I don't hear get talked about. On one hand, here you are doing the big strategic thing, declaring, designing a category, uh, declaring leadership. I, we're number one. We're the category queen, category king in the category we're designing. And you're promoting that and you're doing outrageous things around a point of view about why renting is the way of the future, not buying and, and the F, F bookstore and all those things, right? So those are what I would call strategic category uh, positioning, uh, outrageous, but thoughtful marketing as you talked about. But at the same time, you're sitting there and you're tweaking really small incremental yeah. things, playing with the Google algorithm, doing all this website optimization, SEO, paid search, unpaid, doing all these little. And this is what I love about the marketing world and entrepreneurial world we're in today, which is we get to do the big, thoughtful, strategic, creative, fun stuff. But the digitization of business and of marketing means that we can tweak stuff and experiment with stuff. And then as soon as we find something that works, we can throw a little bit more money at it and so forth. And so I guess my point in all that is it, it, you, you have to have an interesting brain as a, as a leader to, on one hand, do the big strategic creative, and on the other hand, do the really incremental, digital, more analytical yeah, look, you have to be comfortable getting into the weeds, right? You'd really have to be comfortable. At the same time, two hours two hours later, you could be flying at 50,000 feet, right? But but the thing is that there's a gray zone that you got to live in. I mean, I really believe that, you know, they can be black and white at a certain point where this is now my tagline, we're going to stick with it, this is my brand. But during that, there's an innovation process of getting to the right branding. And that's where you're bringing all these things in and what are people saying? And you have to tweak your way through the ultimate thing, right? So, so the way I see it is that, you know, from the branding perspective, from the high-level perspective, you come up with, okay, so here's a little range and here's my playing room that I'm going to see if this thing is going to work or not. And then you have to tweak your way through it. And the tweaking cannot be where you're going to wait for PowerPoints to come to you and going to look at analysis because... Frankly, by the time information gets to you, it gets filtered through so many people that the reality is lost many of the times. I mean, you know, at Convo, our current company, I mean, we, you know, we, we took it on the nose by Slack, right? When it came out, we were in this similar space. We are, we are a different product, but you get put in the same category, right? You can't help it. And, you know, they took off for, you know, there are a variety of reasons for it. But now we have to thread the needle. But we know that it is such a massive space. This will never be a winner-take-all. There are multiple, multiple billion, uh, you know, dollar companies which are going to be built here, right? So it's about threading the needle. It's about looking for the right markets, the customer pain point. Yes, your your journey got a little bit longer, but at the end of the day, there are two point nine billion enterprise employees across the world, right? And you over you get two or three million of them paying you four or five dollars a month. That's an IPO for a company. That's a great big company that you can build. So so that now you got to really think through that. All right, I'm going to tweak here. I'm going to test this out. Do I have fanatic customers who love me? Because you know, if you have fanatic customers who love you and are willing to pay for your product, right? You keep fighting because you know you have something of value. You keep building. You keep adding value. And those are the tweaking that you have to do in pretty much most of the businesses who make it. Very few businesses make it just because they got lucky. It doesn't happen. Well, and you did an interesting thing. You know, I would describe it as a niche down. So you said, you tell me, this is how I interpret it. 
Okay, Slack has won the sort of mega category around um, social business, uh, you know, whatever you want to call that, enterprise social networking, social collaboration, whatever that thing is that's now a new layer on top of email, right? Right. But you said, okay, so they're going to go do that. Um, We're going to focus on an industry. Yeah, look, so, I mean, so when you step back, you realize, look, Slack today says they have 12 million users. It's an amazing company, right? I mean, beautiful product, fanatic customers. But there's, you know, the, you know only 12 million out of billions, right? There's not clearly the marketing perception, especially in, in the bubble we live in the valley, is, oh, fantastic, great, you know, they seem to have won it. You step out a little bit and you go into other industries, as you said. You go into other markets, and it's not even the case. I mean, you know, we deployed at H&M, 15,000 employees, right? They love what we do because we do it in a certain way that we bring in the frontline workers who don't even have an email address to get onto a platform, and they are able to work with us without being in an email system from the corporate world because they have a lot of, a lot of part-time employees, right? So. That's where the massive market is, to be honest, right? So that's what we worked through that, all right, there's this huge portions, huge segments of the market who are not sitting in Silicon Valley, in the bubble, and you know, we're high-fiving each other down here. They have got real problems. Like they are, what they're saying is on my mobile phone, I need to be able to ask my, for my vacation without having to go to a computer to log in. Real problems that they have that you're trying to solve. You know, I, I love uh, the arrogance of the term flyover states, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Exactly. It's like, hey, um, massive companies there's there. a lot of opportunity in those flyover states. And it turns out there's real people who live there who want to get real shit done. And maybe we should focus on some of them. Absolutely. Look, I mean, and, you know, so, so one of our customers is CNBC. And all breaking news on CNBC starts through Convo. Right, they, the story comes in, a tweet comes in, it shows up in, in our interface, and they begin to work on it without ever touching email internally. Um, you know, when you talk to the executive producer over there um, who's running it, he's like, look, you know, this is how we run our news right now. I mean, this is our central point. This is critical to our success. And you walk into the CNBC studios and you see so many computers on. One of the big screens is dedicated to Convo. And you're like, oh my God, I love seeing this, right? You come out with maybe 20 extra pounds of blood that you went you went in before you went in, right? I mean, that's what really gets you going when you see your end users, your customers loving it. And that's a fire you want. Look, even at Check, in the very early days, I still remember this one phone call that came from a grandma. And, you know, she was talking to one of my people. She didn't even know how to use the internet. And, you know, you know, my, uh, you know, our philosophy was, look, we're not going to do our customer service by number of calls per hour. Take as much time as you want with a customer, right? And, but we couldn't take the credit card. We couldn't open their account. So she was like, all right, walk me through on your website. All right. And for 45 minutes, we worked through it. In the end, she said, you know what? I just want you to know something. This is the first time my grandkids are going to get all of their textbooks. For the first time, we've never been able to afford it. And you're like, holy cow. I mean, that is what we're talking about over here, that people want the product they can now afford. We had so many calls like that. We had parents crying that, look, this is the best thing. You saved me $400. So that's when you really begin to feel you've made a difference, right? When we hear from our enterprise customers that, look, I mean, this is making me do my job much more faster because I don't have the noise of a lot of chats going on. I can get my work done. It's the it's post and, you know, method is correct. You know, chat is there for my quick notifications, a quick collaboration in terms of, hey, are we getting together or where are we meeting and things like that. But my real work is happening right in the big part of my screen. That's when you say, man, we got to fight it out. Yeah. Well, and I love what you've done. You've niched down. You've found verticals. You've found industries where you can get massive differentiation and have a have a uh, both a category strategy and a product strategy that uh, makes you different in a way that's hugely valuable, right? And to your point, it's like, okay, well, you said there's 2.6 billion knowledge workers. Is that is that the number? So the 2.9 total uh, um, total uh, employees in the world. 
out of which 2.2 billion are your frontline workers, your non-desk workers, so to speak. Oh, I see. Yeah. Non-desk. Yeah. So the majority of your market is out there, the baristas at Starbucks, the, you know, the people at Chevron or, you know, the, the big, big like UPS and Home Depot, right? That's where your they're majority. Not knowledge. They're not traditional they're not, knowledge yeah, workers. They are on the go. They've got a lot of work to do. You got to give them a tool which makes their life easier. You can't burden them with more stuff because they really have to, are on the go, so to speak. And so it yeah. comes down to understanding the customer's voice, right? That's kind of the way I think about it. And, uh, you know, so we've tried to understand the customer's voice in the enterprise. And by the way, my biggest lesson on understanding the customer's voice came from also from Chegg. So at, at one point, you know, we had, you know, so we've given you this $100 product for $33, right? I mean, sounds a great deal. Shipping is free. Why, why wouldn't everybody be all over this? And we getting good traffic. And right then, around that time in 2007, 2008, this heat map thing had come out and you could see what people are doing on the web page itself. So we had see people looking for the books, fantastic. They were putting them in the cart, fantastic, which means they thought the price was good. They were putting their address. But when the time came to click rent, they were dropping off like craziness. And we saw this whole heat map around the button, which was all red. And you're like, oh my God, what's happening at the button? Why won't they click? So we did research in it. We talked to so many students. And we found out that almost every student thinks they're going to drop the class. Only 2 or 3% of kids actually drop the class. But they were like, well, if I drop the class, what will I do with this book that got shipped to me? Right? And Chris, we just put one line over the button. Dropping your class, no problems, returns are free. I mean, we were holding to the edge of our desk because it just went crazy after that. I mean, a month later, weeks later, we couldn't service 90% of the traffic. There was so much coming in. And it was not about technology. It was not about the color of the button. It was about understanding the customer's voice, right? And that's when I tell a lot of people, like, look, if you're not deep in the weeds, you're never going to hear the customer's voice because it's a split second decision that a consumer decides if they're going to do something or not. And that's where you got to hone into, right? That's what the key thing is. It's such a powerful insight. And I just love this theme that you're on about sort of, you, of course, got to get the big things right. But these little things, right? You, you, you discovered one thing that was the primary reason that people weren't doing business with you. You fixed that one thing and bam. And so, and look, I'm guilty of, of, of talking maybe too much about the quote unquote exponential, right? This was a very small incremental insight and a very small incremental change, but it actually had an exponential impact. You look, you're right, because all the other work we were doing, if that wasn't in place, we would have crashed and burned, right? We, if we didn't have the right um, checkout process, if we had made it cumbersome, we didn't have good enough branding to get them there. We didn't have the warehouse systems behind it to handle the traffic, right? Think of it like this, that there's no, in my opinion, and again, different ways to think about it, there's not one big why intersection you're going to sit at, which is going to decide failure or success. You have hundreds of those decisions which eventually take you in one direction if you're taking the right ones, making the right calls as you're going. Those hundreds of decisions make you a great company, right? Yes, there are some big things that you do. There can be some bigger decisions. But if the traffic had come and we didn't have good customer service or we weren't sending them the emails or the books weren't arriving on time, then we would have been just like yet another textbook industry which was known for not caring about its customers, right? So we had customer voice, but we had customer care, right? We had, you know, we had first used a third party to ship our books and the books weren't arriving on time. And I'm a, I was like, look, at the end of the day, if the books don't show up on time and the kid feels doesn't no value, what we're going to fail, right? So there are many of these other things that you have to do. They're watershed moments, but those watershed moments are watershed moments when you look back because you had everything else around it also taken 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 care of because you were worried yeah. at every step of customer process customer happiness. It's interesting you mentioned customer ha customer happiness. Of course, Eric Yuan at Zoom, his whole thing is customer happiness, right? Yeah. Look, I mean, so you know, I'll tell you that you know uh, one of our guys, uh, Greg, right? He had come up with uh, 
planting trees when you rent yeah. Xbox, right? Kids loved it. We had emails coming in. Can I name my tree Joy? Right? And and that was customer happiness. And in the boxes, we began to put some little surprises. And people would open the box. They were like, yeah, I know I'm getting my crappy book. That's what they would say. But what else is in the box? Right. That's the what Scooby the excitement was. Right? Everybody likes some Scooby snack surprises. Exactly. So we were putting stuff, but you know, that also became a marketing thing for us. And people were paying us to put stuff in the box. Right. They wanted to give, they wanted that. How funny, right? You could then charge people to have them put Scooby snacks in the box. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. I mean, the whole warehouse operations and that part, I mean, Ayush, my co-founder, like he had no idea who he had finished his MBA, right? He had no idea how a warehouse works, but he got into it and he went deep into it and he ran the whole thing. And there were times he would stand in 100 degree warehouse to make sure we process all the books which came back so we could tell the board at the board meeting that our customer returns are this much. Because all those board meetings are very important yeah. for getting to the next investment, right? Because that's when people said, okay, what are your returns looking like? Now, maybe while we're there, you are a master at fundraising and you've raised private money. And of course, Chegg's gone public and you've bought and sold companies. So maybe give me a couple minutes, uh, Asmana, on your thinking about how to raise money and construct a board and, and, and finance the growth of a, you know, a, a very serious kind of hyper growth company. I'll give the example that if you have solved a problem, you're really passionate about what you're doing, right? When we were raising money, a big round for Chegg um, in 2009, when the financial industries were melting, right? They were falling everywhere. This is November 2009. We were raising, we did our Series D for Chegg and we had $1 billion worth of term sheets coming to Chegg while industries were falling around us, right? Why? Because we had worked very hard on the solving the problem and understanding what the customer was looking to do, right? And we raised money obviously incrementally as you get bigger, but throughout the whole process, if anyone asked us a number, we would know about it. Because we, I knew the details, I used knew the details, right? Because I think the biggest thing in um, raising money is you gotta have swagger, right? You gotta feel, you know what? I've really got this thing, ask me anything. I'm gonna answer your question. Swagger is the number one ingredient in raising money. And you know, it's what you gotta have. And you only get swagger when you really know what you're doing. There's some bullshit artists out there for sure, right? But you gotta have swagger. You gotta, you gotta feel comfortable. I get so many, uh, you know, sites from entrepreneurs who are doing great, but they're like, but oh, by the way, we are also doing nice. We're doing awesome. And I'm like, dude, shout from the rooftops. I'm kicking ass. Swagger. Your slides need to say, I am, I thought I would be doing this and I'm doing this, right? I am punching away. I am kicking butt. You gotta, I'm like, you wanna sell, go sell, because you're selling to investors. Don't be meek about it. Don't be timid. You gotta, you gotta take them. Say, ask me whatever you wanna ask me. I got this, and I will walk you through my entire company on a whiteboard if you wanted to. I don't need slides. I don't need any help. I'll do it from memory. That swagger is what people love, right? And that's the same thing that attracts board members, right? That's the same thing that attracts your employees, people who wanna get on the journey with you. Because I mean, my philosophy is: look, ask me whatever you wanna ask me, and if I don't know, I'm gonna tell you I don't know, but Guess what? If I didn't know about it and it was a good question, you can bet your bottom dollar tomorrow I'll know, know what the hell's going on there. But I can sum it down into one word, swagger. I love hearing you talk about swagger. I even love the way you say swagger. Yeah. <laughs> you should write a book. You know. That's a great book title. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're busy. Maybe, I know. Maybe someday. <laughs> I've, I've thought about it, but I'm like, Mike, I gotta sit down and write so much English. Oh my God. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, Asman, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we kick out of this? No, look, I mean, you know, so for me, it's, uh, you know, uh, with the current company that we're building, right? I mean, um, the way enterprises are communicating is changing, right? And we feel that there's such a massive market out there in terms of driving change for how people communicate at work. Because as a consumer, you know, all the great apps out there have changed how I communicate with my family, but the same consumer shows up at work. 
and they get email or they, they don't get anything. And so the ability to really bring about change for billions of people, you know, potentially, but even doing it for a few million people, that's just, you know, we love it. It's, we are crazy about it. And uh, it's very similar to the, you know, the stuff that we have done that there's a customer voice that's calling us and say, hey, look, you know, we kind of need this problem solved. And, um, you know, you got to build the company, the people, the systems around it. And here you go again. If you're loving it, if you've got swagger, you can get there. Aswan, I love you. You're one of the most inspiring entrepreneurs I know. Uh, and uh, I'm so glad we're friends and we've had an opportunity to do some stuff together yeah. and uh, come back anytime. It's great to see you, brother. Thank you, Chris. Well, there he is, the legendary Osman Rashid. Thank you so much. We would like to thank Osman himself. You can check out his new company, Convo, C-O-N-V-O.com. The good folks at OneLifeFullyLive.org. This is the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and be, uh, dream, plan, <laughs> and live a legendary life. Visit the number one, LifeFullyLive.org. My friends at Bottleneck.online are the world's first dedicated distant assistant. And they're kind of the opposite of a virtual assistant. If you're looking for help from a company that's been uh, socially and physically distanced for a very long time, visit Bottleneck.online. If you're a thought leader and you want to get your leading thoughts on podcasts, my friends at InterviewValet.com are there to help you. Speaking of people ready to help you, DeVry University has been doing an amazing job for students for decades. Visit DeVry.edu today. And if you're in the B2B world in Silicon Valley, visit my dear friends at Atrenet, A-T-R-E.net. They've been building legendary websites for over 20 years, and they're ready to do build one for you too. And at this time of need, if you can make a difference to local charities, local hospitals, uh, local um, faith-based organizations, uh, groups like Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, and so many others. If now, now's the time to make a difference. And if you can, please dig deep. All right. I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And uh, we're the sole property of the Oddcast, Lockhead Oddcast Network. <laughs> you know, one day I will learn to read and talk at the same time. I'll let you know when that happens. Clearly, the creators of this Oddcast may have been consuming libations. We're produced and edited by living podcast legend Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Technical legendariness by Sarah Knox and Jamie J, including Lockhead.com. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. Candy Dandy keeps all the trains running on time. Don't forget to listen to the Ramones. Uh, Johnny Cash was right. Listen closely to Katie Lang. Man, if you need inspiration at this time. If her voice doesn't do it to you, I don't know what does. Only by Pastor Rage, Free Range, Eggs. I love you, Mom and Dad. Thanks again, Candy Dandy, and hey, Colin. This odd cast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Elizabeth Holmes, founder of Theranos. Sorry, Lizzie. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please stay healthy, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your difference.